Good evening. This is Radio Free Bichelle. I'm Alphonse. Tonight, the Internet and the French Revolution. Many social dysfunctions today are blamed on the Internet. Things like echo chambers, polarization, fake news, conspiracy theories, denial of science. And the reason for all of this is often given to be the technology. The Internet, social media, smartphones. And I think there are excellent arguments to be made for all of that. And yet, it seems some of this has happened before. I'm going to talk about the analysis of a French historian, Augustin Cochin, who died in 1916 fighting for France in World War I. You can find some of his writings in a book titled Organizing the Revolution. Cochin was opposed to the revolution, to its democracy, and to its murderous terror. But he argued that the cause of this was not the psychology of the participants, it was not even the circumstances. It was a particular form of social organization. And it began decades before the revolution itself with the philosophical societies. This was the time in the 18th century of the Enlightenment, and men across France formed societies for talking about the new ideas, for talking about human reason, the rights of man, democracy. And these societies, Cochin said, went astray. Their discussion of ideas became detached from the real world. And when the revolution happened, men from these societies ended up in positions of influence. And they tried to apply the ideas that they had had in conversation. And the results, as Cochin sees it, were catastrophic. The core problem with these societies, Cochin says, is free thought. Now, free thought seems like a good thing. Free thought, free speech. But free from what? Cochin says that they were free from attachments. Freedom, in effect, meant freedom from reality. Because the goal of the societies was only to talk, not to act, not to do, but just for men to talk and to achieve agreement. But if their agreement is the assumed outcome, that means that the test of success the test of truth, is not whether something corresponds to reality, but whether the participants agree on it. What the participants in the societies were searching for was not truth, but consensus and the approval of their peers. And so the ideas they had were ultimately reduced to mere words and forms, and actual truth itself was cast aside. These societies were egalitarian. Every man was equal. Every man had a vote. That was the principle. But as usually happens, as I've talked about before when I talk about hierarchy versus centralization, that wasn't the outcome. A few members were more passionate, more engaged, more involved than anybody else. And often, these were the men who were least involved in the outside world. Because if you're busy with your job, busy with your family, then you don't have that much time to go to a talk shop in the evenings. And these inner circles that sprang up, a few members in each society would end up directing the society as a whole. If the society was going to have a formal meeting in the evening, the inner circles might meet in the morning, and they would talk about the issues to be discussed at the later meeting of the whole. And they would come to their conclusions. And then they would contact other members of the society and pressure or persuade them. So that then, when the greater meeting happened in the evening, 
there would be many members who would be willing to stand up and attest to the consensus that had already been agreed upon by the inner circles. And when there was a vote, the measure would pass. So in effect, the inner circles were able to direct the society as a whole without appearing to, because for other members there, they would see, there's so many other people who already think this way. I guess that's the general opinion. I should go along with it. And a further feature of the societies was that it was a condition of membership that although you had free thought and free discussion within the society, outside, you were expected to be bound by the decisions of the society. So once the vote was taken, that was the position that these men would express in the outside world. So when the revolution happened, and many of the old structures and the old hierarchies were torn down, it was the societies, the men of the societies, who stepped up and stepped into positions of influence and the new chaotic systems of government. Now, the ideal of revolutionary France was that France would be governed by the will of the people. This is the idea of Rousseau. This is the ideal of the Enlightenment. Direct democracy was the goal. But how can the people rule, especially when they don't actually have representatives? Because revolutionary France did not have a parliament. Well, there were representatives in that people were sent from the regions and from towns to the center. And the societies engineered that as well. They couldn't ensure that they would be elected, that they would be voted in, when this process began. But what they could do is ensure that others would not be chosen by excluding them. They made rules about this. They would say, aristocrats should not be eligible. But Jean here has demonstrated that he is a true revolutionary, so he should be. And so they were able to get themselves elected, Cochin says, by excluding the competition and then making exemptions for themselves on the basis of their virtue and their revolutionary credentials. Now, just as the inner circles had been able to manage the ideas within their societies, they came to be able to do the same thing in France. Now, France had hundreds of societies, and they themselves formed a hierarchy. And at the top was the Jacobin society. And in effect, they were able to launder the ideas of the few to appear to be the will of the majority. And the way it would work was the same. The inner circles would disseminate their ideas out to the individual societies in the, in the provinces, or the départements. And then within those societies, the process would go to work. The societies would vote, they would approve, they would send back their message to the center. The consequence was a kind of control that appeared to go from the edges to the center, but had in fact originated at the center, gone out to the edges, and then come back again with the authority of the popular will. It appeared that the people ruled. In fact, the societies ruled. And just as within individual societies themselves, a counterfeit public opinion came to appear to be the majority opinion, and then it actually became the majority opinion. And for those who were recalcitrant, towns, for example, who didn't want to go along with the new consensus, they could get sent letters saying, you are the only one who doesn't agree. And in one instance, Cochin said, 60 towns were sent letters, each told that it was the only one that didn't agree, which of course was not the case. But then the individual or the town or the community that feels that it is the lone outlier falls in line with the majority. Now it's characteristic of this form of organization, Cochin says, 
that it's leaderless. It's anonymous. These inner circles have influence, but they don't have authority, and their power comes from their anonymity. If it was seen that a few men were leading France, that would be the end of them. But so long as they were able to operate effectively in secret, so long as they were able to launder their power through the will of the people, they held power. It was by exposing and identifying their opponents that their opponents could be taken down, but as long as they themselves kept anonymity, they were safe. The people were the marionettes. That was the word they would use. And they were the wire pullers. And they talked about the entire system as a machine. And an efficient machine it was. Cochin says one of the evidences that it was the machine that was guiding France was abrupt reversals of policy and direction. When the people rule, there's no need to protect them from themselves. There's no need for freedom of speech when the people speak. There's no need for freedom of the press when the people own the press. There's no need for people to be protected by the courts when the people judge. And so this regime could be exceptionally oppressive because it appeared to be so free. As the regime established itself, at first people would go along because they had something to gain. They had something to win. By conforming with the consensus, they could perhaps achieve a position in the government. Perhaps they could get work. But as more and more people joined, there were fewer and fewer goodies to give out. And so, in order to get people to comply, the regime had to shift from the carrot to the stick. Cochin says the terror became more necessary when people were more submissive. Public safety was a priority. France did face real threats. It was at war with its neighbors. There was basically civil war in many of the regions. And there were foreign spies. And there was immense chaos and violence and shortages. But the regime didn't really have the muscle to force people in many instances to do what it wanted. Instead, it used surveillance. Not surveillance by the regime itself so much as mutual surveillance. When edicts were made, they were sent out to the people in such a way that people would monitor their neighbors to make sure their neighbors weren't taking advantage, to put towns and people into competition where they were eager to report on one another and monitor one another and call one another out. In this atmosphere of fear, of threats of counter-revolution, violence was seen to be a good thing. One of the leaders, Merritt, said, Don't lay down your gun until all our enemies are dead. This is humanitarian advice. The result, Cochin says, was a society of oppression, de facto oppression, not de jure oppression. It wasn't the laws and the government that forced people to do things, for the most part. It was that people forced each other. The freedom of the revolution, he says, meant moral isolation. Quote, The regime of absolute freedom and equality is the most powerful one that can exist, the most extensive, the most hierarchical, the most stable, and the most demanding. And the revolutionary man, the man who actually managed things, Cochin says, was the bureaucrat. He was free of attachments. He was free of pride, dignity, intelligence, independence. These things he did not need. And when the revolution ended, and when some of the murderers of the terror were brought to court, they did not stand up and say, I did this because I had principles. I did this because I believed it was right. Instead, they said something that we heard in the 20th century. 
I did it because I acted under orders. Now, as I say, what interests me most about this is not the revolution itself. There are continuing debates about whether the revolution was a good thing or a bad thing, even whether the terror was a good thing or a bad thing. And I don't particularly want to get into that. What interests me is the comparison to today. Like the hierarchy of philosophical societies that existed in revolutionary France, societies where people got together just to talk, not to do things, disconnected from their workaday lives. Just so, today, we have people who get together to talk in social media. And just as then the philosophical societies were not really tied to activity in the world, today, most social media is not tied to activity in the world, not tied to productive activity, not tied to actual positions of authority. And so again, inner circles have tremendous influence. Sometimes those inner circles are hidden. Sometimes they're formal. They might be cliques of editors on Wikipedia. They might be moderators on Reddit or some other discussion forum. And they have tremendous power to influence the direction of those forums and the perception of what majority opinion is. And ideas develop in these systems that can be detached from reality and then emerge into politics in the outside world. Not through formal routes, but through the informal social pressure of people who monitor the activity and the beliefs of other people and put pressure on them to conform. Now, as then, these are movements without leaders. Movements with influence, but not authority. Movements where the most important people may be anonymous or almost completely unknown. Now, as then, many of the most active individuals are people who spend huge amounts of time online and little in the outside world. Now, as then, many of the most active, influential people online are much less connected offline. And now, as then, the opinions of minorities can be laundered through these forums to appear to be the opinions of majorities, or at least of large groups or pluralities of people. And while, again, there are certain opportunities to be had, positions to be gained by adhering to the dogma, by adhering to the party line, for most people, it's fear of being called out, of being cancelled, that puts pressure on them to conform. Koshin's summary of the character of the regime is striking. He writes, One does not generally imagine fanaticism without faith, discipline without loyalty, excommunication without communion, opprobrium without strong active convictions, no more than one imagines a body without a soul. This is Alphonse for Radio Free Bichel, www.bezel.ca. Good night. <laughs>